0: So I wanted to create a platform that didn't just focus on, oh, there's only 3% of Black people at Facebook, right? Versus, well, find that 3% and ask them about what they're building and why it's the dopest thing on the planet. Because now that young kid in Rainier Beach might say, oh, this person who's designing at Nike as an industrial engineer, like that's the job that I wanna have.
1: Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we explore some of the most interesting and meaningful stories on our beats. Our guest this week is Sherelle Dorsey. She's a Seattle native whose story is a powerful testament to the potential of kids in overlooked communities and to the possibilities that emerge when their path is cleared. Shirelle is a data journalist, entrepreneur, and founder and CEO of The Plug, a venture-backed news and insights platform covering black startups and ecosystems. Her new book is Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us. Sherelle Dorsey, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, Todd. It's always a privilege to connect with you.
1: I love your story in part because you grew up in the city around us and had your own interactions with the tech community that might be different from what folks in the tech community in some leadership positions currently might have experienced in their own upbringings. It's just such a great story, and you tell it in your new book, Upper Hand, Why was it important for you to write this book?
0: Such a great question. I took a few years to decide what I wanted to write and cover. I, being a journalist, uh, having worked for numerous different tech companies, and also just being in this space of what does the future of work look like, knew and understood how significant it is for us to have conversations, particularly with communities of color, who typically are kind of spoken about and researched, but not necessarily at the table in part of these conversations. And so I didn't want to create something that felt preachy or authoritative. I wanted it to feel like it is a conversation that we can all have in a way that helps us to think about what are some of the ways in which we get everybody into the boat And value what they're bringing to the boat with them as we try to set sail into this future that is now extremely uncertain as we have lived and are living through um, a a pandemic, a very unprecedented time. And where is it that we want to be as we tackle this challenge around um, diversity, equity, inclusion at the same time?
1: One of the things that I love about the book is that it's multiple things, it's a memoir. It's also a how-to guide, and you don't just tell your story, you you take the time to tell the stories of others, women and people of color in particular, who have succeeded, who've had their own challenges. But let's start with your story. You grew up in Rainier Beach in Seattle. You were heavily influenced by your grandpa and your mom. In fact, one of the most... <laughs> illuminating anecdotes, I thought, was the fact that you had to convince your grandpa to let you go outside and get away from the screen and the Mavis Beacon typing lessons. Tell us about your experience growing up in Seattle.
0: My gosh, yes. Mavis Beacon is such a throwback because for those who are of a particular age, Computer was an actual class <laughs> back <laughs> in the day. And learning home row was such a thing. Like you actually failed the class if you did not properly use home row and learn how to type. And I don't think, just like cursive kind of phased out, like you don't have that exact uh, same scenario these days. My grandfather's story is one that I spent the last few years discovering As I have tried to have and record conversations with family members, especially as the pandemic has continued to rage on and we all kind of move to family gatherings via Zoom or group text, asking the kind of questions that I never thought to ask my grandfather about who he is or who he was. And as I started to just have more candid conversations with him, just even calling and checking in because I, I I live all around the world. And so I always try to check in with my grandparents, learning how he got to Seattle, especially as a, a, a Black man, originally from the deep South, uh, from Birmingham, Alabama, who uh, went to Detroit in his teen years and built a life there until he got this call to Boeing and then sort of Brought some of my other family members over as they decided to venture out of their hometowns. And I thought that that was a fascinating conversation to have with him because I never really understood, like, out of all places, why would you not stay in Detroit, you know, work in the car industry or something? Like, how did you even get here?
1: One of the most fascinating elements of his story is he went to the radio electronics television school. He was trained early on with this engineering mindset. And so that is one of the reasons he ended up. In Seattle, working for Boeing.
0: Absolutely. And and as I, and I talk about in the book, and as I started to look deeper into what was happening at Boeing at the time, that they were hiring folks as far as Detroit and particularly Black workers and understanding the shifting changes of the time because my grandfather was, you know, here in the 50s and the 60s. And that was kind of unprecedented. And this was a man who who had just come back from the Korean War and was trying to navigate his next step. So I can only imagine him being, you know, twenty twenty-one, 21, and then doing this certification program, not really having a clue about who we wanted to be, let alone moving to an entire different city where he had no family and finishing a program. Boeing didn't even interview him. They were looking for workers. And so it was like, hey, if you want this job, come to Seattle and get it. And my grandfather packing, you know, a brown paperback stack of sandwiches and hopping on the Greyhound and, you know, ending up downtown Seattle and staying at the YMCA and like starting his life. I think about what was that journey like Um, especially to be a black man in a city that coming from Detroit was not very black. (laughs)
1: 2%, I think, is the statistic that you cite in the book.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It was a changing time. And this was the, again, this was the late 50s, early 60s. And that transition, and and when we think about what was happening in the 60s, when we think about how the civil rights movement was shaping the world, how certain companies would not hire Black workers, and how fortunate my grandfather had been to be in that role during a time when Boeing was pretty kind of advanced in terms of saying, hey, we want to, you know, we are are hyper-focusing on hiring Black workers. And I think before my grandfather got there, um, they had hired about twelve hundred um, about a decade prior to. And so he kind of had this this sense of of a little bit of luck and being in the right place in the right time. And as I started to do more research around the the demographics of Seattle during the time when my grandfather was there, him purchasing a home, you know in in uh, in Madrona um, in in the Leshi area, and how that community had shifted so much through the years, but also was part of that tranche of land, that had been redlined to ethnic minorities specifically and how now it is such a hotbed because of its close proximity to downtown, transportation, water, what have you. So when I've looked at the history of the engagement of of Black people, Black progress, policy, as well as this idea of how technology has also transformed communities, everything for me became so very... Clear through the lens of my grandfather, who's in his late eighties, th- just thinking through his eyes of, "Wow, all of these things were happening that we that we read about, we learn about, but he lived it every single second up until today."
1: His name is Jerry Dorsey III, and he ended up going on and becoming a camera operator at King TV. And so, you not only have technology in your family history, but you have media, which we can connect to your current role when we talk about that later on. But I'm curious, as you were talking with your grandpa, when you compared his experience to yours in Seattle, was there a difference?
0: So there was a, there was a drastic difference, of course, but I, I still see his life as a through line to my own. Um, I think for all of the opportunities that he got they were very different than the ones that i have had for sure i also saw the through line of his insistence that technology be a part of our lives for me and my cousin i mean i and i think i talk about how my grandfather had security cameras streaming video from his house like before that was a thing and i think about just how much he liked the idea of leveraging technology for efficiencies and how like that made me a technophile very early on. And then I think about how that through line allowed me to be excited about joining a place like the Technology Access Foundation when my mom found the information about TAF and then engaging with Trish Malines DeZico, the executive director and founder of TAF, who wanted to really create a platform or who did create a platform for kids of color just turning a storefront in, in, in the Central District, which at the time, and, and I'm not sure if it's still considered um, the inner city, was pretty monumental. And so I think about the foundation that my grandfather provided, which gave me the confidence to say, yes, I can go into a program like this, learn programming languages, and then go and work for these companies. And so for me, when I think of the similarities, I think about how Boeing was what the Microsoft was, you know, or is what the Amazon is today, that kind of fast growing company that once you have that attached to your resume or to your name, there's a certain level of je ne sais quoi <laughs> that comes along with that. And and how that was how how my Microsoft experience was the Boeing experience for my grandfather and that foundation that allowed me to kind of get to these next levels um, throughout my life.
1: You talked about the Technology Access Foundation TAF and you describe it in the book as, the Motown of training centers. You joined it when TAF itself was about four years old. You got involved in the program and it had just gotten started four years earlier. Tell us the story of how you went from TAF to Microsoft, because you were still a teenager when you got your first Microsoft internship.
0: I was a teenager. I was about 14 years old. And um, TAF, was, TAF was interesting because again, you, you look back and you don't realize how monumental something like that was you kind of take it for granted. it was okay, I have to hop on the bus, I have to take the 48 bus you know from Franklin High School in the South End, you know, get off at you know and in, in 23rd and um, I just finished a full day of school and now I have to go do another three hours in front of a computer and learn languages that don't make any sense whatsoever until you put them all together and create this thing. And what was fascinating about TAF, and, and I, of course, related it to Motown because of my family's origins in Detroit, um, is that it was more than just, let's teach kids how to code. It was, let's work with you on your interview skills. We had executives and professionals who came in who taught us about mirroring language, how to talk about what we built and the things that we were working on, um, how to present, how to work and operate within a, a professional workplace, especially a place like a Microsoft. And so going through the interview process at Microsoft, I think m- one of my first interviews was taking apart a computer, putting it back together, testing the software and logging all the bugs. And I distinctively remember that at 14 years old. And that was like maybe day one of training at, at TAF. So when that happened at Microsoft, the level of comfortability and know-how, it was like I'm breezing through this, you know, like it was not, it was not anything that was super, super intimidating. I remember this idea. We talked so much about the whiteboard test within tech. And I remember like the whiteboard test even as an intern and feeling so prepared because I have been part of this program. Not only to be able to to have the technical skills, but we spoke so much about the soft skill side of it as well. I really think that what Trish and the instructors like Troy Hilton, Zithri Saleem, and Sherry Sherry um, Williams, who continues to remain at Taft today, what they built truly was like a 360 degrees of wraparound support for us to be successful, down to taking us on college tours to local places as well. And the fact that we were able to get paid internships, I guar—I I guarantee you, I even in college, I never took an unpaid internship. And today, I always pay my interns. And that was monumental as well.
1: And as we said, that led you to an internship at Microsoft at age 14. And a crisis moment That was formative for you on the job as an intern at Microsoft. That's my teaser. We're going to talk about that right after the break. You're listening to GeekWire. Our guest this week is Sherelle Dorsey, Seattle native. She is the founder and CEO of The Plug, a technology news site and community that covers the black innovation economy. She's also the author of the new book, Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us.
0: I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash certs included.
1: Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. My guest this week is Sherelle Dorsey. She is the author of the new book, Upper Hand, and she is the founder of technology news site, The Plug. So Sherelle, you ended up going from TAF to an internship at Microsoft. You write in the book about a moment at Microsoft when your supervisor was away, something bad happened, and you came up with a solution, and I love the solution. Can you tell us that story?
0: Absolutely. I think this was my second or third summer internship. So I I did four summers at Microsoft in different teams. And I think this particular internship, I was managing. I was helping to manage a lab. And I had taken a network administration class at TAF Um, Troy Hilton was my instructor there. And I felt a a little bit confident, again, going into my third internship at Microsoft. I felt like I knew the ropes. And um, of course, everything falls apart when the boss is away. And he happened to be like away in the mountains. Like he was away, away. He wasn't just like at home. And the lab ran into an issue where the systems went down. And the fix was fairly simple. But at like 16 years old, I was so just, I was, I was, I was in shock. I, I was in this kind of like analysis paralysis. What do I do first? If I break Microsoft, Bill Gates is going to literally come <laughs> to the office and fire me and ban me from the campus forevermore. And, <laughs> and I will be shamed. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I really had to mentally coach myself through, remember the support that I had at TAF and and um, and you know and just reach out and ask for help and say, okay, it's okay. And, and my boss did not shame me. I mean, that was an excellent example of, of great management and leadership. And I remember, I think the next day or a week later, the TAF, uh, TAF instructors came out and had lunch with TAF interns at Microsoft. And I was telling them about this scenario and, and Troy was just cracking up laughing. He was like, Well, at least like you, you kind of knew what to do. Um, he's like, you just have to have confidence in yourself that, you know, that, that you have a lot of the answers, but it's really good that you've asked for help. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty funny, funny, funny scenario to retell in the book.
1: Do you think that people who are inherent positions of privilege because of their race or gender are more likely than people who are not to ask for help?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. There is this sort of running, quiet whisper that we don't get to make mistakes when we're folks of color, when we're women, because there's so few of us in this place. And even as a teenager and even having grown up in environments where I saw engineers or I had managers and bosses and leaders who looked like me, um, there was still this reality that when you are not a part of the majority, especially in a corporate setting, you cannot mess up because you do not want to ruin it for somebody else that may look like you, who's coming after you. And so, you know, that moment, it was very difficult to ask for the help. Um, I think that was all male team was all white male team and everyone was great. Like everyone was really nice. Like they, they cut me some slack, but I still felt like, my gosh, if I ruin this for myself, it could impact other interns. You know, again, if, if Bill Gates comes to fire me because I broke Microsoft, um, <laughs> they'll never let anyone that looks like me or from Rainier Beach ever again. So for sure. That was such a young age. When I go back to that, I think, wow, that was a lot of responsibility for someone who just got their driver's license. And so <laughs> I,
1: I was stunned when I saw that you were interning there as a 16 year old and earlier. Like didn't you start at 14?
0: Yeah, yeah. I start I started at 14.
1: Just crazy. So you wrap up that chapter with specific tips. And one of them is, hey, look for programs for, for other women, people of color, young kids who are growing up families, look for programs like TAF in your community. I know there are more and more doing similar things in other communities around the country these days. Do you feel like they're making a difference overall in the tech community? How much and, and why not more?
0: That's such a great question. Um, I think that these are great on-ramps for folks, particularly in communities that have historically been excluded, because it starts to build up your confidence in what you have access to. As someone who's an employer, when I get resumes, particularly from people who have traditionally been underserved, there's a lot of general sort of retail experience and there's nothing wrong with retail experience. I even worked retail, you know, in, in, in college when I needed to. But when you're able to stack your resume based on specific projects you were able to work on that contributed meaningfully to a business or to a team, it changes the way that you approach your, your job search in the future. It gives you that insight about what you are capable of and, and how you even chart your course of study as well. And it exposes you to a a wealth of mentors at a young age that will stick with you throughout your journey for however long. And so I, I'm very bullish on the internship experience and even designing your own internship experience, which I did several times in college. And even now for friends who are in PhD programs, who have crafted their own experiences with different companies, many of them startups, um, who don't know what they need, but are able to take on folks who are saying, hey, this is what I can build for you. And and a lot of folks just not knowing how to go about that or knowing that this can be an amazing stepping stone for opportunity. I speak a lot in the book about crafting and being intentional about a network. When I think about my time at Microsoft and I think about every other internship I was able to land after that, there are still, and even fellowships, there are still relationships that I have to this day even as I'm telling the story and talking about my book, I'm able to reach back into that network. And so a lot of times for communities of color, we wait until after college, right? Or, you know, to, to land that first internship. And the message here is that we can start early. And I think the call to executives and to leaders truly is if you don't have an internship program or an apprenticeship program or a fellowship program, And you say that there are some things that you want to do from a community perspective. Giving a teenager an opportunity to learn some skills or be part of teams that are building cool things could be an amazing way to partner with communities and and enable an opportunity where before there wasn't one. A lot of times, and even when I think back to my Microsoft experience, having the TAF connection alone, and because Trish, of course, is a Microsoft alum. It opened a door that traditionally may not have been available to a public school kid from Rainier Beach because a lot of the folks that interned were coming from some of the top tier private schools in Seattle. And so that alone gave me access and a jumpstart. I got the, the Blacks at Microsoft scholarship for college. I got to earn money to help pay for books and and, and cover my, my fees just to travel to New York to go to school. And so if you're able to host three four five interns a semester that could literally change the trajectory of of a kid's life in so many different ways and i think we underestimate that especially as employers what that opportunity can do to enable opportunity for someone else
1: that's great and i know that the audience for your book is primarily kids families others who can learn from your experience and to be clear this is not a panacea that you grew up in I mean you came back. You graduated into the Great Recession. You write about the challenges and how you overcame them. But I think there are some implicit takeaways, as you just mentioned, for current leaders in business and technology. What else do you hope people learn from the book in those positions about your lived experience growing up in Rainier Beach, getting into tech at an early age?
0: My goal for those who aren't the very specific target for the book is to hear another side of a story of what genius looks like and where it comes from. I think, especially as I was in, in school, it was all always about the dorm room startup kid, the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Bill Gates. And when I look around and I look at my grandfather who put, you know, two sandwiches into a Brown paper bag and hopped on the Greyhound who had a vocational certificate, who wasn't a college dropout because he never could go to college and ate French fries every day until he got his first paycheck at Boeing, where he made two dollars and thirty-eight cents an hour in the early '60s. It's that genius to me looks like my grandfather. You know, it looked like the man that put me onto Mavis Beacon, and you know, we didn't, we weren't necessarily building out the the kind of technology that built multi-billion-dollar software companies in the garage, but. My grandfather was building my, my robotic arm for my seventh grade you know, science, <laughs> science fair and, and helping me to really understand my connection to this space. So I never felt like I didn't belong, quite frankly. And I think too many times the language we use, the way that we sort of pattern match and pick and choose our networks from people that look like us or come from our neighborhoods is very devoid of what else exists and how communities in and of themselves can be spaces for innovation. And we just have to change our lens and how we actually look for that innovation. My hope is that as we have this conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have other stories from other people from other backgrounds about what drives them in this space. I want to go back to um, the, the, the idea of, you know, how you mentioned, you know, you never think about making a mistake um, and, and how that might impact, you know, folks that look like you and how we, we carry that so much, um, particularly as ethnic minorities and, and, um, and as women. I want to go back to that because I think so much about how, again, we we automatically make assumptions about what people build and why. And in my in my work as a a data journalist and founder of a, a publication, the Plug, which covers the Black innovation economy, the founders that I speak to and the people who are building technology from these communities are building them to solve societal problems. And there's not a ton of innovation or creative planning that is particular to just building to build. It is literally here's a deficit. And this is why I have to be innovative. I've built an app or I I built a a transportation system because the buses and the trains do not run in my community. So like in New York City, the dollar ride is an innovation on, on something that happened in the 60s and 70s as immigrant communities were trying to figure out how to get to work. And so when you start to look at that, it's a big difference between having the imagination to build just for the future and then having to build for necessity. And I think that if 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 leaders start to look at the reason why folks come sometimes come into technology it is really to solve a problem and to be seen. And I think that that's a different way to evaluate who gets to belong in the future.
1: Someone who's creating a startup, building a company creating their career out of self-interest is gonna look very different from somebody who's doing it out of altruism. And you're saying that the people who are doing it out of altruism, thinking about the community, because those are the problems their community is facing, might not appear on the surface as desirable as someone who's built a startup that has however many millions of users or whatever. Uh, Am I hearing you correctly?
0: Absolutely. And I, I think too, as we start to see a lot of these unicorns having to backtrack and really, really answer to society about what their core values are. We're seeing that with some of the largest companies that have completely changed and altered society and behavior, right? Because that value system was not clear in the beginning. And when you start to look and break down the department, and this this is me getting into my like nerdy journalism bag, but when you start to break down some of these departments and you see who's leading initiatives around community partnerships or accelerators to help invest in, um, you know, small business owners or what have you, the, the the backtracking that has to happen. A lot of those departments are built up by people of color at these companies who are saying like, OK, we, we have to pivot this and really like hyper focus on 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 the communities that have, again, either not been served or have been historically underserved And so it's just a different approach in in the thinking process, especially if you understand the diversity of background. Um, And so I, I love the way that you synthesize that.
1: You are talking to somebody who loves to get nerdy about journalism. So let's do that. Coming up, we're talking with Sherelle Dorsey. She is the author of Upper Hand, a new book that just came out and the founder of The Plug, which, as she said, covers the Black innovation economy. We'll be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. You went on and you studied fashion and then journalism at some of the best schools in the country. You went to the Fashion Institute of Technology. You got your bachelor's degree there in international trade and marketing and then went on to get your master's at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and did a fellowship at Medill at Northwestern University to top journalism programs. Why did you decide to go into fashion and business and journalism and not into engineering because that was a bit of a surprise twist in your story.
0: It is an interesting nonlinear pathway. Um, so I, I actually and it, and of course it, 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 it didn't make sense really to people when I decided that hey I want to go study the business of fashion and international trade and marketing. What I loved about my program was entrepreneurship. I was fascinated by people building things. And when I went to FIT, it was people leveraging technology, leveraging research, leveraging textiles, and using technology to craft these worlds around this idea of of design and opportunity. And it was also during the time of the explosion of social media as well. And so I saw all of these worlds kind of collide. I don't know, you know, how often you are shopping or even going to high-end places to uh, to shop for like luxury goods, but the art of the sale, the art and the thoughtfulness of, of design. Um, at the time, we didn't have the language of UX, UI design, but that experience around apparel or furniture or what have you was so incredibly fascinating to me. And being in my early twenties in school where all your friends are building product and you're having the Calvin Klein's and the Giorgio Armani and the Betsy Johnson's coming on campus to talk about how they built their companies and what leadership looked like for them in their early twenties, trying to build a company into some of the billion dollar brands they've created today for me, was the part of the conversations I wanted to have in order to understand entrepreneurship. I eventually ended up at places like Uber, as well as Google Fiber, and then decided to go to school. So I actually did my master's degree at Columbia in their data and journalism program. And then I did a fellowship at uh, Medill at Northwestern. So I got a good taste of this kind of evolution of, of journalism But all of the kind of precursor to that was the technology path, how technology would help to change society and build out these kind of powerful brands, um, especially as fashion was moving more so to this kind of autonomous environment of like online distribution, selling things through social media, the consumer becoming the celebrity, all of these like cycles of changes that helped me to build my company today. And particularly, I was fascinated by entrepreneurs of color who were finding innovative ways to build companies with much more limited barriers than than before. Being able to pull together a website and create an e-commerce brand and sort of not have to deal with some of the same challenges that discriminatory systems could could display. The internet was that almost democratic uh, component to being able to start to build in public. And so, yep, super nonlinear, um, but it all kind of came full circle um, as I've been building out my company today.
1: Tell us about the plug for people who don't know the site or who aren't members. What should they know about it? What do you do and how did it get started?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, um, so the plug started off as a daily tech newsletter that was covering the Black Innovation Economy Today, we're four employees, 15 to 20 different consultants um, and freelancers, and really more so a, a media and insights platform helping executives and leaders um, and academic institutions really understand, um, you know, how Black innovation is shaping business um, in the world. Really taking that research and that data and that intelligence um, and helping and helping leaders rethink inclusive business. So I've been building it for the last four years. We raised a little bit of money last year to continue to grow. We have some incredible clients. We have some incredible subscribers. And the idea here is to be somewhat of like a I'll say pitch book because I know it's a Seattle based company or maybe a Bloomberg. Um, we're actually the first black business news publication to syndicate on the Bloomberg terminal. but just really defining for the world, the significance of the trends and the research in Black innovation that is shaping so much of, of what we're seeing today.
1: So I signed up for a membership this weekend. I will say I was inspired by your book to, to sign up for an annual membership. So count me in. And I really am fascinated by the way you use data in your reporting, in your process of illuminating the black innovation economy. Can you give us an example of a data set that you're particularly happy with assembling or analyzing and and what it told you?
0: Absolutely. We've had a lot of sort of viral data sets that came together. One of the ones that I worked on in grad school. Grad school was essentially my my MVP building for the plug, and so a lot of my work was creating data sets primarily because they did not exist and no one, particularly in journalism or business or tech journalism had kind of bothered to start collecting this on on a larger scale, um, especially before the last the last few years as we've turned our attention to uh, social injustice, police brutality, all of those things. Um, so the first data set I, I really compiled that I think kind of shook people up and, and said, oh, she's creating something different was understanding the investing patterns of Black-led VC firms and, and starting to collate where they were spending most of their money as we knew that about Ninety percent of all venture capital was concentrated in about three to four different markets, and then also the kinds of uh, the kinds of teams that they were investing in. That story was not the most favorite. It, it it did get a lot of attention. Essentially, I was able to like kind of source from places like PitchBook, CB Insights, Crunchbase, um, and and start to look at these. This is again circa 2017, and notice that oh, black black led VC firms are are still kind of only investing in a founder that might be in New York, San Francisco, Seattle area. So even though we think that there's gonna bring this monumental shift, we're still seeing some of the exact same things in the exact same kind of companies and the exact same kind of male led teams. Um, so let's not make our assumptions about how the industry is changing. And so, um, so that I'm very, very proud of for sure.
1: That's so great. I think one of the hardest things about being a journalist is pissing people off and here you have a situation where this is the community you're reporting about it's obviously the community you identify with in many ways and I think that takes true courage to sit there and hold up the mirror and say hey this is a way that things could change this is the way they are and implicitly this is the way that things could change
0: absolutely absolutely I just wanted to see Smarter reporting in detail about the Black Innovation class, you know, in 2016, like from the last even just decade, decade and a half, as we've seen more um, Black-led companies raise over a million dollars in venture capital, create new kind of market opportunities, you know, in spaces like Rebundle, which sells banana fiber extension hair in a category that like Black women, as Black women, we spend billions of dollars on our hair collectively across the globe. And so these kind of category leaders who are getting access and then creating these kind of new economies around around their brands and, and the hiring of employees, the then going on to become investors, all of these kinds of things that were not being analyzed, evaluated, or shared on a larger scale, and then seeing that trickle down of how journalism influences business decision-making and the fact that there were even just loan officers. There was a survey of of uh, U.S.-based loan officers who didn't think there was a funding disparity, particularly because they were not reading about any folks of color in leadership positions Um, within, you know, within business that they could actually attribute to. So as founders were going to the table with investors, investors say, I don't understand this business. I don't understand this market. I don't see this opportunity. Well, was that a failure of journalism or was that just kind of another kind of ugly, you know, output of of what kind of discrimination can be? And I always like to tend to to say that, listen, if you have a great case study, you've got some great data sets, you can identify the market opportunity regardless of whether or not you care what the founder looks like, you've got the data in front of you. Um, And so that's kind of been my thinking as I've worked to build the plug.
1: What are your thoughts on tech journalism overall? And I'm asking this with some self-awareness and a recognition that this could get somewhat uncomfortable, but please be as candid with me as you would be with the, the folks who read the plug. What does it say that you have to create your own site and your own separate venture to get this out there versus having this be an intrinsic part of the way tech journalism works. And I don't mean to diminish a lot of the work that's gone on out there. <laughs> Certainly, we've done our best at GeekWire. I don't want to diminish my colleagues' work. But I, what does it say that you are, are feel compelled, in, and I think rightfully so, to do this as a siloed kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I mean we we still understand that, you know, newsrooms aren't diverse overall. And then once you trickle into the business and tech journalism components, it gets to be very, very sparse as well. We know that lots of communities don't get covered. And I think going back again to my original question of like who is it that gets to be called genius? It's a Mark Zuckerberg, it's a Bill Gates, it's not necessarily Jerry Dorsey the third who, you know, who helped me build my first robotic arm. And again, going back to Depending on the communities you're from or you understand, you may not necessarily see the other aspects of who's building what. We see that in who's being quoted. We see that in the experts that are tapped to give their opinion or who invited to speak on panels. We see that in a lot of the intellectual laziness of journalists, especially, I want to say, maybe in the early 2010s, who wanted to crucify tech for not being diverse as the Yahoo's, the Facebook's, the Googles of the world shared their diversity reports, but were not very forthcoming about sharing their own diversity reports or lack thereof. But the headlines were always, "Let's let's target tech, tech's doing a bad job. And then the only conversation was the disparity conversation. And quite frankly as a Black person in tech, as someone who appreciates great technology and and, and fascinating founders, fascinating CEOs, leaders, and teams, and and all of the above, to kind of constantly be reading journalism that only hyper-focused on certain kinds of voices. It was frustrating because here I was with friends and colleagues who, even from my days at TAF, were at the Netflix of the world as senior engineers. You know, we're at Trilio and at Expedia and like building cool things. Who had never been tapped to talk about their thoughts on the future, and so there's still a long way to go because a lot of the research and the work, as for folks of color, and why Upper Hand was so significant for me to write, was that. Every conversation, when it relates to Black people in this space and Latinx people in communities, is about disparity. It is about, we're going to be automated out of jobs. We are disenfranchised. We are underserved. We are underestimated. We're under-resourced. If that's what the language of journalism is telling you, particularly in the sense of business, when do you not feel like you're always a problem? So I wanted to create a platform that didn't just focus on, oh, there's only 3% of Black people at Facebook, right? Versus, well, find that 3% and ask them about what they're building and why it's the dopest thing on the planet. Because now that young kid in Rainier Beach might say, oh, this person who's designing at Nike as an industrial engineer, like that's the job that I want to have. And that visibility and that representation makes a tremendous difference. And I think that we still have a long way to go because now that we have more access to data, the conversation is still disparity. It's still like, oh, this quarter, you know, Black-led companies raised X amount of dollars compared to X amount of dollars for white-led companies. That is still a disparity conversation versus, well, what did Black people build with that money? And what's exciting about the future of that? So, so that, that for me, like, as you can tell, I have like a, I have very strong opinions here, but, but that for me is, is why upper hand has to exist because I want to tell people about what they're capable of and how to navigate. And that's why there's exercises and things like that in the book for families to have these conversations so that someone is at least telling them this is possible. Here's a blueprint.
1: (laughs) In the spirit of your TAF conversation earlier, I would say there's a couple or three journalism programs for kids in college that are analogs to that. A couple examples, Dow Jones News Fund is one that we work with at GeekWire. And also Report for America is a great program for general interest news. And so I, I would throw those out there in the spirit of what you're doing in upper hand where you're acknowledging the disparity, but you're also more than that talking about how things can things can get better.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's to get the upper hand. Um, And and just to your point as well, we have an incredible Report for America reporter on our team who covers innovation at HBCUs. And um, for those unfamiliar, historically-backed colleges and universities graduate the most Black and Brown engineers and scientists in this country. And so we wanted to hyper-focus on, well, what kind of cool innovations are happening, like Morgan State University hosting the first like FinTech Center for Black College Students and just all of these really incredible things that no one has ever thought to ask HBCUs about how they're preparing students for the future of work. So we just, it's just about shifting the conversation. And that's why the book is even titled Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us, because it really is about not leaving folks behind or burying them in jargon and all of these limitations and and data that can be very prohibitive and more so of, listen, here are some on-ramps. And you can take this into your own hands and and gain the upper hand as you navigate what's next.
1: Sherelle Dorsey is the author of Upper Hand, the future of work for the rest of us. Sherelle, thanks again. Thank you, Todd. Sherelle Dorsey is a data journalist, entrepreneur, and founder and CEO of The Plug, a venture-backed news and insights platform covering black startups and ecosystems. Her new book is Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us, published by Wiley. You can read an excerpt on GeekWire and buy upper hand, wherever books and eBooks are sold. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our headlines. And a special request here, please take a moment, if you would, to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. My colleague John Cook and I will be back next week. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening.